0: Okay, so uh, Aidan, I know I'm going first and then you're carrying on. So uh, here we go. Um, Just talking very briefly about hospitality. um, Just to remind everybody, it's actually a spiritual gift, uh, but it's also a very practical gift. Um, It's about making people feel welcome and comfortable and therefore often, so often they feel loved. So that's the part about hospitality I really enjoy. Sarah asked me if, I thought I had this gift. She went, she said, no. And I'm like, really?
1: Yeah, no, no.
0: Well, I grew up in a hotel uh, that my parents owned. And then later on at the age of 21, I went out and became a hotel manager. And having a table full of people is definitely my joy. So maybe- Do you want to think about your answer again? So maybe I do have that gift, perhaps. In the UK, um, the host uh, does all the work. So if you have friends over for dinner, It's usually a really quite lavish occasion. Um, You set the table, you light the candles, you definitely get invited to eat two or three courses. The host does all the work, does all the clean up, does all the serving. And actually I have to say, I love doing this. Even with two young kids, it was really a joy for me. So coming here to Canada was quite different. I I realized that um, potluck or Uh, Taking along a dessert or a salad was much more of a normal way of doing things here. And actually, I have found over the years a much more accessible way to enjoy just being together. Um, So my Downton Abbey days are done. (laughs) But um, I really have enjoyed that. And we embraced it a few years ago with a a bunch of friends who we love to hang out. We uh, took an idea from England called Curry Club. They do that in the pubs they're in England, but because we don't really have problems like that here, what's the pity, we actually invented that ourselves and so once a month we'd get together with a group of friends and um, everybody uh, that came would bring a portion of the meal, so the um, host just had to set the table, light the candles and uh, I think they did the starchy part of the food, the carb. And then everybody else bought the main course or the dessert, uh, the dessert, the veggies, the salads. And it was just so great to all sit around a table. Everybody had just done a very small part of it, but you put it all together and it was a feast. So I really enjoyed doing that. We do that for New Year's as well. Mm-hmm. Sit around the table for way too long and have as many courses as we can possibly squeeze in before midnight. So, yeah, I... Uh, I I would definitely recommend something like that when the pandemic allows us to do stuff like that. But along the way, I found lots of people have actually said why they don't want to host or don't like hosting. Um, one of the things that I've heard quite often is I can't host because my house is a mess. So I would say to you, don't let that stop you. Clean the washroom, host when it's dark, so they can't see the dust, lights and candles, nobody will ever know. So don't let that stop you. Or what about, I can't cook? That's a, an excuse I've heard often. Well, let me teach you a phrase um, I made up a few years ago. Instead of ha- homemade, say it's hand-bought. So go to the store, you know, buy a spit roast chicken, chop a salad, chocolate for dessert, and you're done. It doesn't have to be fancy. Um, it overwhelms me is another excuse I've heard. So, well, what about saying I need to be done by seven because I've just got to have a, a quiet evening, or take a picnic? Uh, or do a barbecue, go to a restaurant, get a takeout, there's loads of ways to get together if you don't like cooking or don't want to be in your own house. So I would just encourage all of us to maybe consider that. Um, It's really about being together, it's not about what you eat or where you eat it. And just on a final note before I hand over to you Eden, one of the things that I love enjoying most each month when Obviously it's a bit different with COVID, but one of the things I've enjoyed the most is going along and feeding our friends at Jubilee Park, the low-income families or the homeless. And as far as hosting is concerned there, all I do is buy a ham and slice it up. So it really can't get simpler than that, but it's an absolute joy to serve these lovely people in our community. So there's a take on hospitality,
2: even over to you for more spiritual stuff. Mm. Oh wow. No pressure. Um, Thanks for sharing, Karen. That was awesome. Um, So to be clear, and and Karen mentioned this, hospitality is not defined solely by inviting someone to your home and feeding them. Uh, That is a common form of it, but you can be hospitable in almost any space how you greet someone, how you engage with them, how you listen and respond. Making space for others is the essence of hospitality. If hospitality uh, is a spiritual practice, and it is, then how does this connect us with God? We have a lot of word pictures and scriptures of the banqueting table and imagery of God preparing a place for us. God is in nature hospitable. Unfortunately, some of us have dropped a few letters from the word hospitable and landed on God is hostile. Not so. When we make space for others, we are emulating God, which is a spiritual practice. So let's lean into this together in a listening practice for just a few moments. I just have three questions for us to listen for. How do you most naturally make room for others? What is your hospitality style? And then let's ask Jesus to show us what challenges us and limits us from making space for others. Do you ever talk yourself out of sharing hospitality, what might that common reason be? And Jesus, would you show me how you make space for me? If God is hospitable, then he is making space for us. And how does he do that for us as individuals? So take the answers to these three questions and begin to form a spiritual practice for them or with them. Being aware of your most natural form of hospitality How might you strengthen that way or expand it? Being aware of your challenges, you may have to, um, being aware of your challenges, you may have to um, overcome some of those challenges or work within them and discover how Jesus has made space for you and consider how you might accept the invitation to that space and then enter in. Jesus, show us the space you have made for us and give us joy in entering into it. And now I get to introduce um, our speaker for this morning. His name is Bradley Jersak. His claim to fame is that he's been married to me for 34 and a half years and he's still standing. Uh, He is part of the Orthodox Church in Dudney but teaches here at the bridge on a semi-regular rotation. He is Dean of Theology and Culture and Professor of Religious Studies at St. Stephen's University in New Brunswick, an editor for a magazine, and also always has a book or two in the works. If you think I'm bragging about my husband, I most certainly am. He wants his epitaph to read He is no one of consequence, but I can assure you that he is extremely consequential to me. I'll just pray for him before he begins. Jesus, thanks for all you have poured into Bradley. You have been generous. Would you bless Bradley this morning as he shares with us and give us ears to hear? Amen.
1: Thank you. So uh, today is sometimes called Triumphant or Triumphal Entry Sunday. And then also it's Passion Sunday in the Western Church Tradition. Um, I suppose that's because Passion Sunday was preparing us for Passion Week and also trying to give a Sunday to thinking about the cross um, for those who are going to focus on uh, Easter Resurrection Sunday next week. And I've, I've chosen to focus on Passion Sunday this week for a few reasons. In fact, um, behind me, we see the closing moments of today's gospel reading, uh, the death and burial of Christ. But uh, before we get to that, we have some, some other preaching to do. So I'm going to share my screen now hopefully that looks okay. I want to begin with the wounds. I was thinking about this through the week. I can only worship the God who bears our wounds. There have been other gods, even other Christian gods, I think, other post-Christian gods that don't have wounds, that don't bear our wounds, or whose wounds are abstract to us because we've actually forgotten to gaze on the serpent on the pole. But The wounds are important. Brian Dirksen wrote that song that we asked uh, you to look at if you had a chance this week. If not, you can look at it later. In it, he says, My Lord, my God, I know who you are. I know by the scars in your hands. Uh, He's referring, of course, to the week after the resurrection when he meets Thomas and says to him, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Thomas recognized his Lord and his God and makes that confession because he recognizes the wounds that he had not even seen. Remember, he was not an eyewitness of the crucifixion. He had not been in the room the week before when Jesus had shown his wounds to the others. And yet it's not until he sees the wounds that he falls down and worships him. I think it has to be the same for me. Zechariah prophesied chapter 12, verse 10. He says, it's Yahweh speaking of all all the gods. (laughs) Yahweh says, they will look on me the one whom they have pierced it's then that they mourn as one mourns for a beloved one as one grieves for the firstborn it's when we see that wound in his side uh, john 19:37 will pick that up and it locates this moment the fulfillment of zechariah's prophecy to the cross where Those who look on him, those who behold him, see the one they've pierced. And the centurion says, this is the the son of God. In Revelation 1, John will speak up again. And he says, or locates the fulfillment of this prophecy, when every eye shall see him. When every eye shall see him. They will look on me, the one they pierced. And mourn as one mourns for an only child. Of course, it plays out that he will wipe every tear from their eyes. But the active ingredient in this grace, this outpouring of grace and compassion from the Lord, is the wounds. Is the wounds. Father Richard Rohr says, those who gaze upon the crucified long enough, with contemplative eyes... The eyes of your heart are always deeply healed of pain, unforgiveness, violence, and victimhood. Those who gaze upon the crucified long enough, not with eyes of flesh, not with academic eyes, but the eyes of the heart. The vision of the cross is effective in healing. And I love how inclusive he is here. It can heal us of our pain. It can heal us of unforgiveness towards those who've caused us pain. It can heal us of the violence that our pain drives us to. And it can heal us from staying stuck in a victim identity. The cross heals us as we gaze upon it. And so we're going to gaze upon it. I'm going to start in Mark 15, first 15 verses, Act 1, before Pilate. And immediately, early in the morning, the chief priests prepared a consultation with the elders and scribes in the whole council and having bound Jesus, they led him away and handed him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, you were the king of the Judeans? And in reply, he says, you say it. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, do you give no answer? Look how many things they accuse you of. But Jesus answered, nothing more, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at a festival, he released to them one prisoner whom they requested, and the one called Barabbas was bound together with the rebels, those who had committed murder during the insurrection. And the crowd went up and began to request. He act toward them as he usually did, and Pilate answered them, saying, Do you wish that I might release to you the king of the Judeans? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over through malice. But the chief priests agitated the crowd so that he might instead release Barabbas to them. And in reply, Pilate again said to them, What then should I do with him? You call the king of the Judeans. And again, they cried out, Crucify him. But Pilate said to them, Why? For what evil did he commit? But they cried out the more, crucify him. And Pilate, deciding to appease the crowd, released Barabbas to them, having flogged Jesus and handing him over that he might be crucified. Mark 16 or 15, 16 to 20. Then the soldiers led him inside to the courtyard, which is to say the praetorium, and they called together the whole cohort cohort. And they clothed him in purple and plaiting a throne, a thorn crown. They placed it around him and they began to salute him. Hail King of the Judeans. And they battered his head with a rod and spat on him and going down on their knees, they made obeisance to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him off. They stripped off the purple and put his clothing on him and they led him away so they might crucify him. And they press into service a certain passerby coming in from the field, Simon the Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, so that he might carry his cross. And they bring him to the place Golgotha, which being interpreted means skull's place. And they gave him wine infused with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucify him and portion out his garments, casting a lot upon them regarding who would take what. And it was the third hour and they crucified him. And the epigraph of the charge described against him was the king of the Judeans. And they crucify two bandits with him, one at his right and one at his left. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, he was murdered with the lawless. And a passerby blasphemed against him, wagging their heads and saying, ah, the one tearing down the sanctuary and building it up in three days, Save yourself by descending from the cross. And the chief priests, likewise, share in, in the mockery of the scribes. One with another said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the anointed, the king of Israel, descend from the cross so that they may see and believe. Before I read the, about the death of Jesus... It's at this moment that eyes begin to be opened. They begin to see the one they've pierced, at least in retrospect. And in this way, the Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures are open to them. And they begin to see that Moses and the prophets and all the scriptures declare that Christ must enter his passion and suffer and die before Entering into the glory of his kingdom. Uh, Two of those passages come up in our lectionary reading today. And I'm wondering if I I think one is from the Psalms and one is from the prophets. Could we have the Psalm and then the uh, Isaiah passage next?
0: This is from the Psalms, Psalm 31, nine. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye wastes away from grief, my soul and body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my misery and my bones waste away. And verse 13, for I hear the whispering of many, terror all around as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O God. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and persecutors. Let your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love.
1: Thank you, Lynn. And now the other reading.
0: And um, this is from Isaiah, Isaiah uh, chapter 50, verses 6 to 9. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I did not hide my face from insult and spitting. The Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near, who will contend with me? Let us stand up together, who are my adversaries? Let them confront me. It is the Lord God who helps me,
1: who will declare me guilty. Thank you, Steve. And now the death of Jesus. And then the sixth hour came, darkness fell over all the land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which being interpreted means, my God, my God, why did you forsake me? And some of those who were standing there hearing this said, look, he calls Elijah. And one of them, having filled a sponge with vinegar and placing it around a rod, ran and gave it to him to drink saying, Leave off, let us see if Elijah comes to take him down. But Jesus, letting out a loud cry, expired. And the veil of the sanctuary was rent in two from top to bottom, and the centurion who was standing by opposite him, seeing that he had thus expired, said, truly this man was God's son. Now there were also women watching from afar, among whom were the Mary, Mary the Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, the small, and Joseph and Salome, who had followed him and attended on him when he was in Galilee, and many others who had come up with him into Jerusalem. And now the burial of Jesus. And now that evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, which is the day of the Sabbath, there came Joseph from Arimathea, an honored member of the council, who was himself also awaiting the kingdom of God, taking courage, he went into Pilate and requested the body of Jesus. But Pilate was amazed that he should have died already and summoning the centurion, asked whether he had died as yet. And learning it from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. And having purchased linen cloth, he took him down and wrapped him in the linen and placed him in a tomb that had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the tomb's door, and Mary the Magdalene and Joseph's Mary watched where he had been laid. This is truly remarkable. I want you to consider the possibility that humankind has been worshiping God or God's in some way for as long as 60,000 years. 60. Thousand years where we know even Neanderthals were doing ceremonial rituals in the burial of their children. For 60,000 years, we've been worshiping in one form or another, considering death some kind of strange and sacred event. And after all of that, the dominant symbol for God in the human race is a cross. Tom Holland, the cross on which Jesus had been tortured to death, came to serve as the most globally recognized symbol of a God that there has ever been. Ponder that. Imagine aliens coming to Earth and discovering that humanity's cruelest imaginations put together a form of torture through which they would murder their own God. And his resurrection so overcomes death. That the symbol is transformed from an instrument of torture into a symbol of love. Self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. But it's not only a symbol of God. It is that this crucified one is God of, for, among, and in the oppressed. Whenever we divorce God from the crucifixion and the crucifixion from the oppressed, we end up fashioning some other form of God and recreating um, Zeus or Molech or Jupiter or one of these other uh, great and all powerful gods who transcends the human experience. The crucified one is God of the oppressed. God of the children of Israel suffering for 400 years as slaves in Egypt. It is that foundation that Judeo-Christian faith emerges from. It's the God who goes with his people into exile as the suffering servant. In Babylon and Assyria, it's that God who suffers an unjust execution after being declared not guilty, the hands of imperial Rome. And this crucified God is not only of the oppressed as one of them, but for them, for our benefit, for our liberation, for our redemption. When I say our, I have to express some sort of identity with oppression or bondage. And it's hard to do that when you live in an Abbotsford mortgage-sized house. And it makes it hard to follow Jesus. And so he says, This crucified God is among the oppressed and we see him in the oppressed that's that's where we meet him it's much easier to find him in the wounds of those who suffer in this world and to see him through their lives and in their message and preaching i want to tell you a story about blandina who becomes an image of christ herself now saint blandina lived in the second century and she was a young slave girl in a Christian home at a time when the emperor was really persecuting anybody who wouldn't worship him. And what was going on is the Romans were trying to, um, they were arresting and torturing slaves to get the slaves to, to uh, turn in their Christian owners by telling the romans or confessing to the romans that christians were into incest and cannibalism and blandina herself was a christian and she would not say that she would not confess that and so they uh she and her friends and and brothers and sisters in christ were rounded up and uh, they took her to the arena and First of all, they, they sicked uh, wild animals on her. And, but the lion's legend says, uh, wouldn't touch her, but her guards um, began to torture her in all sorts of ways. And in fact, uh, she, she just would not recant. Um, sometimes when I think about the bravery the courage of Blandina as she's being tortured in every way imaginable until her torturers are exhausted. I'm embarrassed about how easily we throw around the word deconstruction because somebody wounded my feelings at a church sometime. Hey, I'm one of them. (laughs) Not only have I been insulted by Christians in churches, I've been the one who's done the harm. And then I look at Blandina and I'm really embarrassed. And I go, when the son of man comes, will he find faith in the earth? Um, She was suspended on a stake and exposed to be devoured by the wild beast who should attack her. And by being seen hanging in the form of a cross and by her earnest prayers, she inspired great zeal in those struggling. For while struggling, they say, with their outward eyes through the sister, the one who was crucified for them, that they might persuade those who believe in him that all who suffer for Christ's sake will have eternal communion with the living God. They saw Christ in her. In a way that you will never see or hear Christ in me. Um, I don't. I don't really have anything to say <laughs> when I when I think about the shadow of Saint Blandin and it's the same. It's the same today. We'd better we'd better sort out the voices that are going to define what faith in Christ even means. And um, so, I want to shift now to today, and I'm thinking about James Cone. He said this: any theology that is indifferent to the theme of liberation is not Christian theology. Um, Frankly, uh, the Western church has been more committed to enslaving than it has been to liberating. But maybe those who were enslaved and and their descendants might have something to say that I can hear. Um, I really recommend this book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, as a primer in how perhaps we can hear the afflicted ones speaking through the afflicted folks that we could actually connect with and hear from. The cross and the Lynching Tree are the two most emotionally charged symbols in the history of the African American community. Both the cross and the lynching tree represent the worst in human beings, and at the same time, a thirst for life that refuses to let the worst determine our final meaning. While the lynching tree symbolized white power and black death, the cross symbolizes divine power and black life, God overcoming the power of sin and death. For African-Americans, the image of Jesus hung on a tree to die powerfully grounded their faith that God was with them, even in the suffering of the lynching era. Mm -hmm. And so, so it is, I I, I really believe the following, I've written out this part very carefully because I don't want to get one, I don't want to slip on one word. It's so important. When the church divorces the gospel from the liberation of the afflicted, it has lost sight of the cross. It forgets what redemption means. Sadly, so many who've rejected a white supremacy gospel have now also rejected the cross in the name of decolonizing, as if the solution is retracting the Jesus story as part of reparations. And then 10 minutes later, it went from abandoning Jesus to belittling love. What? Instead, the Black community preserved the Jesus story in the context of affliction and the cross where it was birthed in the first place. We need their voices to recolonize the church and the culture with cruciform love. Redemptive violence is only expunged at the cross. Only at the cross. Triumphalism is what happens when bypassing the crucifixion of Christ. We live in triumphal entry enthusiasm. Imagining it is Easter Sunday victory. The lack of scars should clue us in. The appetite for vengeance means we have not yet been transfigured by love. And who really wants to be? We've been convinced that love is powerless. But wasn't that sort of the point? Look, literally gaze. Christ doesn't want our pity. He wants to douse the hellfire of malice in our hearts and incinerate every weapon of wrath we've justified and idolized in our fear and bravado. And they will look on him, the one they've pierced and they will mourn as one grieves for the firstborn so that's that's just what's churning in me after reading the wisdom from James Cone in a couple of his books god of the oppressed tells us that this jesus that jesus the jesus story is not expendable if we want to get rid of oppression and injustice and violence it's just not. There's, there's no liberation from vengeance and violence and unforgiveness and wrath that doesn't pass through the crucifixion. Jesus is who he was. Jesus is who he is. Jesus is who he will be. And so now um, I just want to share some, um, some excerpts from what Cohn says about those three points before I wind up. Jesus is who he was. He says it this way, the error of separating the historical Jesus from the Christ of faith has a long history. My assertion that Jesus is who he was stresses the biblical emphasis on Jesus' humanity in history as the starting point of Christological analysis. In other words, to, to, use, to use a simpler English, we, we don't divorce The Jesus of history from the Christ we encounter today. For without the historical Jesus, theology is left with nothing but an idea principle in a theological system. We cannot have a human Jesus unless we have a historical Jesus, that is, unless we know His history. That is why the writers of the four Gospels tell the good news in the form of the story of Jesus life. The events described are not intended as fiction, but as God's way of changing the course of history in a human person. So the Jesus wasness matters today. And then he says, uh, Jesus is who he is, to, cl- to declare that God raised Jesus from the dead, as we will next Sunday, is to say that our knowledge of Jesus is not limited to his life in Palestine. Jesus is not merely a historical person who once identified with the poor people of his land and subsequently was executed by the Roman authorities for disturbing the social and political status quo. The crucified one is also the risen Lord, Faith in the resurrection means that the historical Jesus, in his liberating words and deeds for the poor, was God's way of breaking into human history, redeeming humanity from injustice and violence, and bestowing power upon little ones in their struggle for freedom. So who he was is now also who he is. If Christ is not risen... Injustice and violence have a green light. And then finally, um, he says, Jesus is who he will be. And he quotes Jürgen Moltmann, sort of the European grandfather of liberation theology. Mm -hmm. Moltmann says, the future which does not begin in the transformation of the present is for me no genuine future. A hope which is not the hope of the oppressed today is no hope for which I could give a theological account. If theologians of the future do not plant their feet on the ground and turn to a theology of the cross, they will disappear in a cloud of liberal optimism and appear a mockery of the present misery of the suffering. End of slideshow. So um, let's just sum up a little bit here. I think I think it's important that sometimes we shift our emphasis on this Sunday from the triumphal entry, which I have no problem preaching about either, but to Passion Sunday, where we consider that the actual story matters. The gospel is not four spiritual laws. It's not six Rome um, bricks on the Roman road, and it's not and it's not a cartoon of of a big chasm with a cross spanning. It's a story and we've got to trust the story. And it's a story of a real human born in oppression, who dies in oppression and then conquers oppression by love. It's a story of the God who bears our wounds. As Kenneth Tanner says, the universe doesn't love you. Just watch a biology lesson. It's a God who comes as a human being that bears your wounds that can claim to be love. And that that love, the cruciform God, cannot be divorced from the soil of oppression and affliction that his cross sprouted from for the purpose of liberation and redemption, which are you can't lose those without losing the gospel. And that's why, that's why the church in North America is, is really on its last legs. We could just pack it up and go home at this point, except that there are still some voices who might be able to remind us of who this God is, and what he's done, and what he wants to do. And, and, uh, and for, for, my, uh, for my part, that's why I'm sitting at the feet of people like James Cone, and, and those who know that story by experience, and whereas I'm only able to echo it um, in this way today. So um, I'm just thinking like, what, how does this matter to, <laughs> to the bridge church? Well, um, uh, some of you actually have experienced pretty intense oppression or affliction of some sort. Um, you're among the poor and among the broken and you carry very deep wounds. Uh, for if, if that's you, then, then the cross is your story and your wounds are your gospel. Um, if you can let the cross transform you by love. And, and f- for those who really, uh, where we're grafted into this story and, and actually experience privilege, I, you know, the, maybe, maybe the best we can do is also follow Jesus in setting aside privilege. And what would that look like? And now is the time where we read Philippians chapter 2. Um, would our reader who has that passage, go ahead and then I'll close in prayer.
0: This is Philippians chapter two, verses six to 11. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in a human likeness,
1: Um, so, Father in heaven, we thank you for revealing yourself not to us, not as a nuclear mushroom cloud or an all-powerful weapon of force or an imperial um, magistrate or, or global arms race kind of God at all, but you, you came as one who, who knew what it is to be a refugee, um, who what it, what it was to be a displaced person, what it was to be um, outside of privilege that, that you actually laid down or laid aside the privilege of your, of your glory and then showed us a new kind of glory on the cross, um, the glory of love, glory of forgiveness. And, uh, and uh, I do proclaim today uh, that we believe that Jesus suffered and died, was buried under Pontius Pilate, that he descended into hell and he rose again on the third day. And so the one who knows affliction and bears our wounds also stands with us alive today. And uh, we receive that love. We receive that healing and, um, and we're grateful for the power of what a gaze at the cross can do for us today. Um, I pray that it would have that effect on us in the coming week. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, yeah,